That's some bass. That is some serious bass. I don't even know where those speakers are, but I would love them in my car. That would be so awesome. You could hear me coming from miles away. Well, hey guys, my name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge. We're so glad that you are here. I want to welcome those of you that are watching online. We're so glad you're with us as well. Uh, on the front end, say, uh, hey, we're sorry about some of the traffic and parking issues, but I want you to know that it's because we're trying to make things better. You sound like the government right now, I feel like, but <laughs> we are trying to make it better and it will be soon, very soon. So thanks for hanging in there and being patient and uh, fighting through to find a spot and uh, be here today. We're in a series called Encounters. So just started a couple weeks ago. And this whole series, what we're doing is just looking at these different encounters that Jesus had with people and how that encounter changed their life forever and how their encounter can actually be our encounter. And there's moments and times and seasons in our life where we desperately need an encounter with Jesus. And maybe that's where you're at today. And so our hope and prayer for you is that as we look at this particular encounter we're gonna look at today, that you'll put yourself in the middle of that story uh, because maybe there's an encounter with Jesus that you desperately need. Um, anybody here ever played golf? Raise your hand if you've ever played golf before. All right. I, sometimes I ask, I asked in the last service, uh, how many people are here that are golfers? And not as many people raise your hand. But if you've played golf before, you get a lot more hands. And so I would put myself in that category. I'm not really a golfer, but I've played golf. And I used to love golf. I used to play a lot more. I have a 20-month-old, so golf is not really on the agenda these days. Uh, but it's, a, it's an amazing sport. It's a lot of fun. And I like it because you can like actually hang out with people while you're playing this particular sport. And if you've never played, you probably think, maybe you've watched it on TV before, and you're like, that seems like a really easy sport. Because it's honestly one of the few sports where the ball that you have to strike is actually completely still, right? It's not moving, nobody's throwing it at you and you have to hit it. It's just literally teed up. And all you have to do is hit a ball that's 100% completely still. So a couple years ago, I'm playing with this group of guys, myself, three other guys. I knew one of the guys really well, uh, and he had invited me to play with them. And it was on a really nice golf course, not the kind of golf course I would normally be allowed on, but I was allowed on this course because I was with this particular guy. And uh, so we're on the first tee box, uh, getting ready to start the day, and beautiful course and hole one is, is pretty wide open like it's very forgiving hole it's like you can hit it a little bit left or a little bit right you're gonna be fine it is a massive fairway right and there's beautiful homes on this course in fact they were had just been telling me that Carrie Underwood some of you know who Carrie Underwood is country music female artist amazing incredible person by the way just a fantastic her and her husband both great Christians um, and uh, they're like, that's, that's her house right there. I was like, well, that's a, that's a beautiful house. I don't think they actually live there anymore, but they, at this time, they lived in that house. I'm like, that is a great house. So we're just kind of like talking about this awesome house that Carrie Underwood and her husband, Mike Fisher, live in. And uh, everybody's kind of going, I was going last in the foursome. So they all hit it, you know, out into this big, massive fairway, right? And if you've ever played golf, you know that the first hole, the first tee box, that's when your nerves are kind of, you know, because it's your first shot, right? And I'm playing with people I don't know super well. And so I go to kind of put my ball down in the ground and I hear one of the guys say, oh my gosh, Carrie Underwood is right there. 
and she had walked out on her like little deck with a cup of coffee. It's early in the morning. And so I'm, you know, I'm like, I got to stay focused here. Like I'm not even <laughs> going to look. I, I, you know, I put the ball down. I did take like a quick glance and sure enough, there she is with her cup of coffee. And, and I was like, you know, lining up, I'm standing over the ball and I kind of look back at them. I'm like, is she watching? They're like, yeah, it looks like she's watching. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm about to hit a golf ball in front of Carrie Underwood. And so then I made a fatal mistake, fatal mistake. I looked back at the guys and I said, watch this. <laughs> I came back as far as I could and I hit that golf ball harder than I have ever hit a golf ball in my life. I crushed it. But then what happened next was pretty amazing. Like all three of the other golfers like agreed that they had never seen a golf ball travel in that direction before. It was like a 90 degree angle this way, okay? Now keep in mind, like I said, it's a very easy hole. There's no sand on this hole. There's no water on this hole. Like it's hard to mess this hole up. My ball goes about 200 yards that way, right? Straight arrow and lands in water on a different hole. Like. I found a water hazard when there wasn't even a water hazard, right? And, um, you know, I was, I was like, I couldn't look up to see if she was there. I was like, is she still there? They're like, she walked right back in the house. <laughs> I'm sure she was afraid of my next shot, right? And I get it. I, I totally understand. But I'm playing with a very gracious group of guys. And so they all agree. They're like, hey, Pete, why don't you just take a a mulligan. So if you're not familiar with golf, mulligan is like this grace note in what is otherwise a very unforgiving sport. They're like, take a mulligan, which means, hey, Pete, don't worry about it. Let's pretend like you didn't just send your golf ball 200 yards in the wrong direction and land in water. Let, let's, let's start all over. Get another golf ball out of your bag and put it on the tee, it's, it's because your ball's gone forever, right? Like, forget about ever finding that ball. Like, you get to start over. It's not going to be reflected in the scorecard, nothing. You get a mulligan. You're a fresh start. It's a beautiful thing. And I was thinking this week about how amazing it would be if we had mulligans for, like, other areas of life, right? So you get pulled over by a cop, right? And he's kind of writing up your, you know, citation. And he hands it to you, and you just look at him, and you're like, Sir, thank you so much for what you do protecting our community. I'm gonna take a mulligan on this one. And yeah, you just rip the ticket up and you drive off. Wouldn't that be amazing? Or you're at work and you got a big project due and you're way behind and you know you're way behind. You've been procrastinating and your boss burst into your office and he is upset or she is upset. And they're like, I need this and I need this now. And you just look at him and you're like, hey, I know you're frustrated. I'm going to take a mulligan on this one. Bob down the hallway, he's got it covered, right? Like, like it would be so like, or you botch a test, right? Or you forget to get your wife an anniversary card or, you know, it goes, the list goes on and on and on. We could use mulligans like in every day of our life. But the truth is, if we're really honest with each other, and I think we should be today, um, sometimes our need for a mulligan runs a lot deeper than that, right? And some of you, uh, man, you, you hurt somebody that really matters to you. And you see the pain in their face. You would do anything in the world to just go back in time and change 
what you did that hurt them. And now you're facing guilt and you're facing shame and you don't know if like the trust level could ever be built back up again. You don't know if it'll ever be the same, right? Maybe there's somebody here who, when you were young, you got pregnant and you were just really scared and you didn't feel like there were a lot of options and maybe there were some people speaking into your life that encouraged you to get an abortion and you went through with that and Maybe it was a decade ago or three decades ago, but hardly a day goes by, you don't think about that decision. And, and you just wonder, what if you'd have done something different? You have a ton of regret and just pain and shame about that. Maybe you're involved in a dishonest financial practice and you know it, nobody else knows it right now. You feel like you're probably not gonna get caught. You've been really careful. You're dotting the I's, crossing the T's, but you still live with this lingering, like almost spiritual cancer that's eating at you because you know that it, it's, it's not right. Or maybe you've just failed like dramatically in some area of your life that really matters, a failed marriage, maybe failed at parenting, maybe you failed in some way that you feel like you've completely lost your integrity. And again, it's just this guilt and this shame that lingers with you. I'm gonna introduce you today to a guy in the Bible by the name of Peter. Uh, some of you, if you've been around church for a while, you're, you're probably pretty familiar with Peter's story. Uh, I, I love Peter. There's something about him that is so real and so human, and I feel like I have so much in common with this guy. And I, like, I really hope, like of all the Bible characters, I hope that like he's my neighbor in heaven. Like I think that would be so cool, and we'll sit out by the fire, and we'll trade war stories, and it will be like epic. I don't want, I like Paul, I think Paul's a cool dude. I think like he wrote like two thirds of the New Testament. I just don't want him to be my neighbor. I just, uh, I, I don't. But Peter, that would be cool. And so um, the study of Peter's life is truly a story of contradictions. It's the best word to describe. He is a walking contradiction. It is a series of ups and downs throughout his whole life. We see early, you know, Jesus had called him from being a fisherman, called him to leave his nets, to follow Jesus. He said, you're not, no longer going to be a fisher of fish, you're going to be a fisher of men. Like, I'm, a, I'm giving you a new purpose, right? So he starts following Jesus. One day, Peter and all the disciples are on a boat. There's a terrible storm that blows in. Waves are crashing, lightning, wind, the whole thing. And suddenly Jesus appears out on the water. He's walking on the water. And he actually calls Peter to get out of the boat and to walk to him on the water. And this is one of Peter's, like, courageous moments. None of the other disciples do this, by the way. He is the only one that had the courage that day to step out of the boat. And Peter is walking on water to Jesus. That is a spiritual high, right? I mean, that's something that, you know, you post on Instagram. Like, this is a big deal. I am walking on water. I'm doing this. I'm sure he's like, do you guys see this? This is amazing. But then we're told, seconds later, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he sinks like a rock. Right? It's just a great example. This is his life. It's contradictions. It's highs and lows. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, we get there. There's a, a, a lot of confusion in Matthew chapter 16 in the culture over who Jesus really was. They knew he was different, but nobody really knew who he was. And so Jesus goes to his disciples, right, to, to help them get clarity on who he is. Matthew chapter 16, this is verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do they say, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
they replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter like seizes the moment, right? He just jumps to his feet and Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Spiritual high, right? Like he got the right answer. He stepped into that moment and he was right. And Jesus even says to Peter, hey, Peter, like you made a connection there that you couldn't have made on your own. You have a connection with the father. You have a connection with God. He revealed this to you, right? Like well done, Peter. Great job. And I just picture Peter like turning around to the other disciples, getting high fives. It's like I nailed it. You remember like when you're in school, the teacher would ask a question and there's like dead silence and you finally raise your hand and you're the only one in the class that knows the answer. I, that never happened to me, but <laughs> it might have happened for some of you, right? And so uh, it's, a, it's a moment of pride for him. He, he nailed it. But then just a few verses, literally a few verses later, same chapter, verse 22. This is where Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he's going to be crucified, but that he'll resurrect three days later. And this just hit Peter wrong. And so Peter, verse 22, says, Peter took him to the side and he began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, they shall, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I don't care where you are on your spiritual journey. When Jesus calls you Satan, that's a setback, right? That's a bad day. When you go home and your wife's like, how was your day? You're like, oh, Jesus called me Satan. Like, it's not good, right? He goes from this moment where Jesus is like, Peter, well done. You have a connection with the Father. To Peter, you're acting like Satan. <laughs> you're a stumbling block. Again, it is a study of contradictions. Over and over we see this. Jesus one time is having an intimate meal with just his disciples. This is the night before he's going to be arrested and crucified. We call this the Last Supper. It's kind of a big deal. And Jesus is explaining to all the disciples, listen, here's what's about to happen. And when this happens, you're going to be overcome by fear. And my followers are going to scatter. They're going to leave. They're going to run away. Peter hears this. And again, he jumps to his feet. Matthew 26, he says this in verse 33. He says, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And I believe that when Peter says this, he means it. He really does. In his heart, like there's no world that he could imagine. There's no scenario that he could dream up where he would deny having an association with Jesus. This is the man that he loves. This is the man he's been following for three years. This is the man that he feels like he's given his life to, right? This is the man who's given him purpose, who called him away from fishing to live a life of purpose and, and make an impact in the world. He can't imagine that he would do that. And, and I'll tell you why I know that he meant that in his heart. 
It was hours later, Jesus is being arrested. It's Peter who grabs one of the swords of the soldiers and cuts off one of their ears. He meant it. And in that moment, he was backing that up. But he's a study of contradictions, isn't he? And so if you know the story, you know that hours later, he would do exactly what Jesus predicted. And he would three separate times deny having any association with Jesus. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not associated with that man. I don't know that man. He was scared. He had a tremendous amount of fear. And in that moment, he makes what feels like the worst decision of his life, the kind of decision that you just never recover from, the kind of decision that haunts you for the rest of your life, the kind of decision that you feel like in that moment, you just gambled away everything good that you have. That's how he feels in this moment. In this moment, I'll be honest, it's hard to picture Peter in this moment. Like, this is Peter the apostle. This is Peter the friend of Jesus. This is Peter the passionate. This is Peter the courageous. The same Peter who jumped out of the boat and walked on water to Jesus. The same guy has done the unthinkable. And he has so much shame. And he has so much guilt. And now he is... Peter in hiding. Now he is Peter who's weeping. And so Peter denies Christ three times. Jesus would be arrested, crucified. He resurrects three days later, just like he told the disciples that he would. And actually, Peter's one of the first disciples that shows up to explore the empty tomb. But after that, he disappears. And we kind of know why he disappears, right? If you're following along in the story, he disappears because of the shame, because of the guilt. He goes and hide. And the next time we see Peter, we're told that he's fishing. Now, the reason this is important is because we haven't seen Peter fish since the day that he met Jesus. Jesus called him away from that. He gave him a new identity. He gave him a new purpose, right? And he'd been following Jesus for these three years. And now all of a sudden we see Peter after all these events and he went back to fishing. The shame, the guilt led him to go back to a pattern of what life was like before he met Jesus. Jesus. He went back to what he had known. He went back to what was comfortable. Now, again, let's not make this just a story about Peter. Let's kind of turn this around on us. Have you ever, you ever promised God that you'd do one thing and then you turned around and did something different? Like a God, I promise you no more lust. God, I promise you no more numbing out on alcohol and drugs. God, I promise you, like, like I'm, I'm not going to gossip anymore. I've seen how destructive that is in my life and in my community. No more. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. God, I, I promise you, I'm going to get more involved with church. Like, I know that we need to be more involved. My family needs to be more involved. We're going to start serving and giving and being a part of that community. Like, all these promises. But rather than resist the flirting, you went right back to it. Rather than ignoring the gossip, you engaged in it. Rather than walking away from the bottle, you turned it up. Rather than following Christ and his purpose for your life, you just took the path of least resistance. And now you have a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And you did what Peter did. You went fishing. Not literally, but you went back to what you did before you had met Jesus because that just felt more comfortable. You felt like that's where you belonged. You didn't feel like you were worthy to live the life that God had for you. You're not where you need to be. You've retreated. 
part of its fear, part of its shame, part of its guilt. Like, you, you still consider yourself a Christian, right? Like, you don't believe you've lost your salvation. You feel like God still loves you because God has to love you. But you also believe what is equally true is that God is disappointed in you. He loves you, but he's disappointed in you. You're going to go to heaven, but your life here on this earth is going to be regulated to kind of this plan B where he could actually never use your life for something great. Well, Peter's story was far from over, obviously. And he's about to have an encounter with Jesus. And that encounter with Jesus is the encounter that I really want us to look at because Peter is hopeless. And we're told that he's out fishing with some of the other disciples. He's in a boat, probably similar to this boat, and they had been fishing all night long. He's in a boat, he's full of guilt, he's full of shame, and um, the sun's just starting to come up, right? It's dawn, we're told in scripture. And the disciples see kind of this like shadowy figure that's on the beach, they're not far, they're just kind of, you know, anchored just off the shore to see this guy on the beach, but they can't completely make out who it is, right? And they hear a voice, you know, it's this man that calls out to them and he says, hey friends, have you caught anything? They're like, no, no nothing. We, have, we haven't caught a, like a single fish. And the voice calls back out from the beach, throw the net on the other side. And so reluctantly, I'm sure they take their net and they throw it on the other side of the boat and we're told that they catch so many fish that they literally cannot get the net back up into the boat. Now, this whole scene is very intentional. Jesus is so intentional in this moment. He's essentially recreating the moment where he first called Peter and some of the other disciples. Remember, they were out in the boat. They were fishing, hadn't caught anything. He told them to cast on the other side. That was the moment he said, I want you to follow me. Here we are some three years later, a lot of mistakes, a lot of ups and downs. They're out there again. They've gone back to what it was they had done before. And scripture tells us that in a moment that they pulled those fish up, Peter knew. It hit him. Instantly, it hit him. And he cries out, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat, which shouldn't be that surprising. Apparently, that's just something that dude loved to do. Uh, he jumps out of the boat into the water, and he just starts to run towards Jesus. And he gets up on the beach, and he smells something. It's a charcoal fire, we're told in scripture. Now, the reason that's interesting is because a charcoal fire only appears two times in the entire New Testament. The first charcoal fire that's recorded in scripture happened on the night that Peter denied Jesus. He denies them next to a charcoal fire. The second charcoal fire, here we are, not exactly sure how many days later, but it's on this beach. And he walks up and he smells something. It's interesting because, you know, scientists tell us that uh, when it comes to our senses, it's our sense of smell that's often most tied to memory. So this is why you can like walk into uh, a building and you smell something. You're like, this smells exactly like the doctor's office I used to go to when I was a kid. And like instantly it transports you back there. Or you walk into a house where somebody's cooking something and you smell it and you're like, that reminds me exactly of like the apple pie that my mom used to make when I was a kid. It's, it's amazing how a smell can instantly transport you, right? 
I think it's very intentional. He walks up and he smells the charcoal fire. There's no doubt he is instantly transported back to that night where he had disowned Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And so he's nervous, right? He hasn't actually seen Jesus since then. And so there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of shame. He doesn't know what's going to happen in this moment. He already doesn't feel like he's worthy to be in Jesus's presence. And we're told that Jesus has his charcoal fire because he's cooking them breakfast. And so they all have breakfast together. I'm sure it was kind of an awkward like breakfast, right? Because there's still some things that have been unsaid. And then after breakfast, Jesus kind of pulls Peter to the side. And this is the conversation. This is the encounter that would change everything. John 21, it's verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, this is going to be the third time, again, very intentional. Peter denied Jesus three times. Now, what Jesus is doing in this moment by asking him for the third time. Again, this is about renewal. This is about reconciliation. This was about healing. It's not about guilt. Don't misread this part of the text. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, you screwed up. <laughs> it's something that human beings kind of do on a fairly regular basis. You messed up. But Peter, your denial of me three times, you making that decision that you feel like has wrecked your entire life, you feel like it's discounted your calling, it doesn't. You're not done. And what you did is not who you are. Kind of reminds what Pastor Brad's always saying to us, failure is not final, failure is not final. Like we have to be reminded of that completely. That's what's happening in this moment. Jesus is saying, Peter, it's not over. You're not done. You messed up. But my calling and my purpose for you has not changed. Now, it makes sense to us. Conventional wisdom, which is what most of us subscribe to. Conventional wisdom tells us that the person that God is going to use, right? The person that's going to make a great impact, right? The person who, you know, God uses for special, like that that's a man or a woman who first of all probably has some kind of just ingrained natural leadership ability, right? They have some kind of special giftedness, whether it's singing, whether it's leading, whether it's creating art, who knows what it is, but they have some kind of like amazing natural ability. And in addition to that, it's somebody who walks the straight and narrow, right? The person that God's gonna use is gonna be the person who's never screwed up royally, right? They've never had a public scandal. They've never been arrested. They've never been on the front page of a newspaper or in a news story at night, right? They've never gone through a divorce. They never messed up in their parenting, right? Their kids walk the straight and narrow too. These are the kind of people that get used by God. These are the kind of people that make an impact. Yes, of course, sure. Obviously, we would assume that that's conventional wisdom. In our culture today, when someone messes up, if you screw up, guess what? You're gonna get a demotion, right? Or you're gonna get written up 
maybe you'll be, you know, kicked out. Like, we have this term these days. It's a fairly new term. It's called cancel culture. You mess up, and we're done with you. You're dead to us. We're not dealing with you. You're a mess. Go away. You're an embarrassment. Go away. We're cutting you off. Right? That, that's kind of the way our culture works. Some of you agree with it. Some of you don't agree with it. But I'll tell you this. You know where our culture learned cancel culture? The church. Church was doing this a long time before it was cool. The church did this way before it was popular. And somebody along the way kind of picked that up. Now, the church has done some amazing, amazing, amazing things throughout history, but we've also done some embarrassing things. And I think that this is one of those embarrassing things because it simply does not match up with the gospel. It doesn't match up with the way Jesus dealt with broken people, right? Jesus didn't just look at a broken person and be like, ah, they're broken, discard them. They're broken. They're going to be an embarrassment to my vision and mission, right? They're broken. We're done. Let's move on. That's not the way that Jesus dealt with brokenness and dealt with people. It's not what he did. I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to try really hard not to break this. I've managed to two services. So um, have you ever heard of the ancient Japanese art form Kintsuki? It, it's, a, it's a pretty cool like concept. And the, the idea was, and it's ancient, I don't know exactly what time period this kind of started, but the idea was, you know, you had a vase or you had a platter, you had something, you know, that was really nice and valuable. Obviously, if it got a crack in it, it was kind of useless. You could no longer pour something into it. And so if it got a crack or if you dropped it and it shattered, like, you know, it's done with. You just discard it. You cancel it. You get rid of it. Then someone had this idea, like, what if we didn't do that? And what if instead of putting it back together in a way that you couldn't even tell that it was once broken, what if we make art out of it? And so what they would do is literally take like a, a powdered gold, and I don't know exactly what they would mix it with, but they would use that powdered gold on all the different cracks to take these broken pieces and, and put the object back together. Now, what I think is, is, again, most interesting about this is they repaired them, but they highlighted where they had been broken. They didn't disguise it. They didn't pretend like there was never any brokenness, right? And it becomes this beautiful piece of artwork where that which rendered it at one time useless and unvaluable now all of a sudden redeems it to make it even more valuable than it was in the beginning. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment with Peter. He's not ignoring the fact that Jesus had denied, or that Peter had denied him three times, right? He's not ignoring that. He's not like, get up here, Peter. Let's just move on. No, he, he names it, right? He calls it out, but he's giving them the opportunity for healing and restoration, See, by that first charcoal fire, what Peter did was say, I don't know him. By the second charcoal fighter, he said, I love this man. By one charcoal fire, he declared that he even knew Jesus. He denied him. By the second charcoal fire, Jesus restored him. And as painful as that conversation probably was for Peter, it was needed. It was a healing conversation. And again, I, I want to point out what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not humiliate him publicly. 
Could have. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask him, Peter, are you sorry for what you did? He didn't say, Peter, do you know how painful that was to me that you did what you did? He didn't ask Peter to promise that he would never do it again. He asked Peter one question. One question. He says, do you love me? Right? Do you love me? That's all I need to know. Peter, do you love me? It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. You know, I think something that we have to remind ourselves of, all of us that are on this journey, and and I'm not assuming all of you are on a journey of following Jesus, but for those of you that are, some of you have been on that journey a long time, I think every once in a while we need to remind each other that this journey of Christian growth is long and painful, and it has a lot of ups and downs. Like if you were able to chart people's spiritual growth, rarely is there like the moment that they accept Jesus and his forgiveness and then the rest of their life is just up and to the right. Rarely is that what it looks like. Peter's name literally meant rock. It's the name that Jesus gave him, right? You're a rock. But the reality is that most of Peter's life was very unrock-like. It was all over the place. And it took consistent failures to produce in Peter a rock-like character. But the big irony in this entire encounter is that from the beginning to the end, Jesus believed in Peter more than Peter could believe in himself. And if you don't get anything else today, what I want you to know, actually, I don't want you to know this, I want you to feel this. Jesus believes in you more than you can believe in yourself right now. Right, he does. And as some of you, you're pushing back in your mind. You're like, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you don't know what I did. You're right, I don't. And I don't need to know. But I know that Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And I know that some of you are running and hiding and covering up. And you feel like you just could never be used again. You walk around with your head down. And again, you're just buying time. Like you can't wait to get to heaven one day where all this could be over because you screwed it up so royally here. I'm telling you, that's not God's plan for your life. And I want to challenge that thinking today. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been keeping up with the NFL draft. Uh, how's Detroit looking? Lions looking good? They get some good picks? Good. Glad you think that. Uh, I'm just kidding. I haven't even seen who they picked. I'm sure it's great. Uh, they're all great. All of them. And gosh, you guys were so close this past year, right? Like, I... I, I I'm going to say it right now. They are going to go to the playoffs this year. Yep. And you, and if they don't, you email me all your complaints, all your anger. You email it straight to me. My email is brad at northridgechurch.com. They're going to make it. I feel it. I really do. Great team. So I've been kind of watching my team. I like Tennessee Titans, so I've been kind of watching some of, some of their stuff. But anyway, it's got me really excited about football. I love football. And there's something about, like, in a football game, it's, yeah, have you ever been watching a game, right? And it's tight. It's so tight. Your team's a little bit behind. And then kind of last minute, like, there is a big play. And let, let's say it's just a bomb to the end zone. And your receiver comes down with what looks like just a miraculous catch and it's like final seconds you're like we did it like there's so much excitement and people are going nuts in the stands and you're cheering at home or wherever you're at 
But then the commentator's like, uh-oh, there's a flag on the field. And you're like, you gotta be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. There's a flag on, and they're saying his foot was out of bounds or he didn't have possession of the ball or something. They saw something, right? So they threw a flag like, eh, that didn't really happen. We're gonna take those points back. And then all of a sudden you go from this high to this low. But then something else happens. Another flag enters the equation. It's a red flag. And the coach has the red flag, right? And the red flag is this challenge flag. He throws it out. I, I love to see it because usually they're all worked up and they even have a hard time getting it out of their pocket. They're like, where's the dang flag? Like, but they throw it eventually. And it's usually a pathetic throw, but I would like just take that thing and just make a declaration. Like we're launching this thing. They throw the flag. They're like, um, actually, we're gonna challenge that flag. We're gonna challenge your flag with our flag because we saw something different than you saw. We think he had possession or we think his foot was in bounds, right? We, we th and then in that moment, what happens, we actually really don't know what happens, but apparently it goes up for a booth review. We don't even know really where the booth is. I think it's in New York somewhere. And it goes to this booth review and there's somebody that's sitting there who's watching it. I think that's a really cool job. I would love the power of that. Like I wanna be the booth. I'm reviewing it in the booth. I'm gonna tell you from up high what really happened and what the consequences are for this, for this moment. So it goes up for this booth review. And sometimes it takes a couple minutes and everybody's sitting around on pins and needles and then the ref eventually walks out and he almost always starts with some kind of line along upon further review and then they make the declaration and that's it. Whatever they say in that moment, either way, it's over. Now, some of you have been in this game of life and it didn't go like you planned. You promised to do one thing and you did something else. Maybe you hurt a lot of people in that process. Maybe you feel like you're living out the consequences of that decision every single day of your life. And that shame and that guilt is so nagging. But then Jesus comes along and he throws that red challenge flag. And he says, hey, I know it seems like it's over, but it's not over. It's not over. You see, every single failure in your life is up for review as long as Jesus is on the scene. Every single failure. I don't care what it is. I don't care what you've been through. Upon further review, Jesus says, I know it looked one way, but this is something different because I'm going to take what you did and I'm going to redeem it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to pretend like it didn't happen, but we're going to take your brokenness and all the different pieces, and we're gonna bring it back together and we're gonna make something very beautiful out of it. But you gotta trust me. And the reality is for a bunch of us, what we trusted when we received Jesus is we trusted that he would forgive us of our sins and that we would spend eternity with him. So you've trusted him with your eternity, but you've yet to truly trust him with your forgiveness. And see, in the moment you received Jesus, you were set free. In that moment, that happened. You were forgiven of your sins, past sins you were going to commit in the future. You spent eternity with him, right? In that moment, you were set free. But the reality is there's a difference between being set free and living free. And some of you have been theologically set free. There's a moment you can point to. You were baptized, all the stuff, right? You were set free. You have no idea how to live free. And even though you've been forgiven, you still live with this lingering shame and guilt and you think that you've been sidelined. And God's like, what's going on here? Upon further review, 
you are free. It's like this unbelievable mulligan. You can start over. Yeah, it doesn't mean all the consequences of what happened just instantly disappear because most often they don't. But you have been set free. Now you have to learn to live free. Stop hiding. Stop running. Stop assuming that you've been regulated to a plan B in your life and that your marriage or your parenting or your finances or whatever it is will never be all that they could be because of what you did back then. And I want to give you an opportunity for a defining moment today. So I'm going to ask you all just to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to challenge you to do something today. It's really not my challenge. I feel like this is Jesus' challenge. I feel like Jesus is throwing the challenge flag at some of you right now. And he's like, I'm going to challenge the way you're thinking. I'm going to challenge the way you're living. Because what you see and what you perceive and what you've learned to believe is not true. That's not the way it happened. You're living like you're still in captivity to sin. You're living like I haven't redeemed your life. You're playing small. And I'm going to challenge that. And so today I want to ask us and invite us to do something. Maybe we don't do a whole lot around Northridge, but, but I think this is important because Jesus was so intentional to create a moment with Peter that he would never forget, right? For the rest of his life, Peter would never forget that moment on the beach. And I want to give some of you a moment that you'll never forget the rest of your life. And whenever that guilt and that shame comes back and tries to wreak havoc on you, you can think back to this moment and say, nope, nope, nope. I have been set free and now I'm living free. And I'm not gonna allow that to control my life anymore. So in just a second, I'm gonna count to three. And when I get to three, if you're living with some guilt and some shame for something that happened in your past, again, you know you've, been technically forgiven of it, but it still lingers. It's still keeping you from being fully alive and fully present and living the life that God has created you to live. Maybe it's something that happened last night. Maybe it's something that happened 30 years ago, but it's there and it's just kind of eating at you. I want you to stand up, right? When I count to three, I want you to just stand up and I just want to pray over you and I want this to be a defining moment for you where you can leave that shame and that guilt in the same way that Peter jumped out of that boat and he ran to Jesus, I want you to stand at your feet, a declaration of faith that Jesus can ultimately take the, all of this away. So here's your opportunity. One, two, three. All right, if you're standing, I want you to just look up here. If you're still in your seat, that's great. Like, you can just kind of hang there and pray for the people around you. But I want you to look up here for just a second if you're standing. Because I think there's a whole... There's a whole lot at stake in this moment for your marriage, for your parenting, for your life because you're not functioning at full capacity when you're carrying the weight of that shaming and that guilt. A lot at stake. And so let's put a stake in the ground today saying no more. You've been set free and now you're gonna live free. And what happened, happened and you're gonna deal with the natural consequences, right? But here, 
you're going to know that God can still use you and he will use you in a mighty, mighty way. And what I want you to hear is God could not love you any more or any less than he does in this very moment. Do you believe that? Just shake your head if you believe that. And I'm gonna ask you one question. You don't have to answer this question out loud, just answer it in your heart. It's the exact same question that Jesus asked Peter on the beach. Do you love him? Do you love him? In other words, do you wanna follow him? And if your answer is yes, then what I believe God says to you in this moment is feed my sheep. In other words, return to your purpose. Return to what I created you for, to bring me glory in your life and in your relationships. Return to me, come home. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for each person standing. I thank you for their courage to admit that they still have some shame and some guilt that's wreaking havoc on their life and havoc on the purpose that you've called them to. And I pray that right now will be a defining moment for them, that they will always look back at this moment that they stood and they chose to believe that upon further review, what you did on the cross was enough. That upon further review, their life does matter. That upon further review, what happened in their past does not have to dictate their future. That upon further review, God, you love them deeply. And whatever has happened did not take them out of the game. Father God, we love you. We're so thankful for your grace and for your mercy, for your constant pursuit over us. And I pray that this will be a moment that I and nobody standing will ever forget. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you're still sitting, if you'd stand up, I want us all to stand together. And uh, we're just going to have a moment um, to worship together. And just be reminded of this truth that we have a good God who loves to pursue us with his grace and with his mercy.